Although we don't have a complete national picture, data from a few states and cities are showing that the COVID-19 virus is disproportionately infecting and killing African-Americans. In Illinois, for example, African-Americans comprise 43% of people who have died from the disease and 28% of positive tests, even though they're only 15% of the state's population. Similarly, in Detroit, Milwaukee, North Carolina, Connecticut, South Carolina, African-Americans are disproportionately at risk. Why is this so? And what can we do to alleviate these skewed proportions as we work together to flatten the curve and beat back this pandemic? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association. I'm your host, Kim Mills. Most media reports of these inequities suggest that African Americans are at higher risk than other populations because of a higher incidence of underlying chronic medical conditions such as diabetes and hypertension, and because African Americans are less likely to have health insurance or a regular health care provider. While these factors may be true, this analysis overlooks the root causes of the African American health gap, historic and contemporary racism and discrimination. Here to talk about these issues and what psychology can do about them is Dr. Brian Smedley, APA's Chief of Psychology in the Public Interest. In this post, Dr. Smedley leads APA's efforts to apply the science and practice of psychology to the fundamental problems of human welfare and social justice. Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, Dr. Smedley. Thanks for having me, Kim. My first question to you As we began to see the disparate impact of COVID-19 on African-Americans in places like Chicago, New Orleans, and the other locations I mentioned a moment ago, were you surprised? Unfortunately, I'm not. Uh, Epidemics and pandemics historically have hit our most vulnerable and marginalized populations hardest. We know this from past epidemics. Uh, And in in the U.S. context, of course, African-Americans have faced generations of systemic discrimination and, and racism, as you pointed out. So the the fact that African-Americans have higher rates of chronic health conditions to begin with is in itself a reflection of that social and economic inequality. Uh, And so pandemics such as COVID-19 are going to spread most rapidly among those populations that are most vulnerable uh, and have been, in fact, marginalized uh, historically. So um, unfortunately, we, we could have predicted that this would happen. And Uh, As the epidemic continues to spread, we can predict that other uh, populations that have faced historic discrimination uh, and marginalization will will also experience higher rates of spread of the virus. Are we seeing some of that already? I've read that some of the rates among the Latino community are also out of proportion. Yes, and there are a number of factors that contribute, of course, to the spread uh, of the virus in these populations. You look at living conditions uh, where people may not be able to practice uh, physical distancing. You look at the kinds of work uh, that uh, people of color are disproportionately in, uh, uh, sectors where they might be considered essential workers uh, or don't have the economic luxury of being able to stay home uh, rather than going out and, and, and working. Uh, housing conditions, conditions in neighborhoods, all of these factors may contribute uh, to the spread of the virus. And it's important to note uh, that in many cases, these are are environmental conditions uh, that the residents of those neighborhoods have very little control over, such as the presence of environmental pollutants. Uh, There's some new research, for example, suggesting uh, that in neighborhoods with a higher concentration of air pollution, that the uh, COVID-19 virus is spreading more rapidly. And you can see how that might be the case 
given the fact that respiratory illnesses are more often linked uh, with air pollution and other sources of environmental degradation. What about immigration status? How is that playing into the infection rates in, uh, in those communities? Yes. And so this is a complex issue that, again, complicates our ability uh, to flatten the curve, to, cont- to contain the spread of the virus. Uh, there are many uh, new arrivals to our country. Some are legal immigrants. Uh, some are folk who are here without documentation. Uh, of course, among those without documentation, uh, there's a fear uh, of, um, uh, of ICE intervention and uh, detainment, deportation. So you can see how individuals who are here without documentation might be fearful of coming forward if they're symptomatic, uh, or they might be fearful of um, being, uh, getting relatives tested who, may, who might be symptomatic. But even among folk who are here legally, among legal immigrants, the fact that the administration has taken steps uh, to cur- uh, curtail Uh, their use of or access to uh, public benefits such as safety net programs uh, for fear that that might be detrimental when applying for permanent legal residency, Uh, that kind of fear can also suppress uh, the ability or willingness of folk, even among legal immigrants, uh, to uh, access testing uh, or other uh, public health services or public benefits uh, that might be otherwise helpful to them. Do you think that the historic mistrust of organized medicine among some black people, especially older black people, is playing a role in this? Well, you know, the mistrust issue is a complex one. Uh, certainly there, there is mistrust among some segments. Uh, but I think a broader issue is the fact that uh, people of color, African-Americans in particular, are very aware of the research showing uh, that um, they often receive a lower quality of care uh, than white patients, even when they're presenting uh, with the same illnesses, the same kinds of health insurance, and sometimes even in the same health systems. So the fact that there are disparities in health care and, and the quality of care for these populations uh, may be playing a, a, a larger role than the issue of, of mistrust itself. Uh, I think all of these factors, of course, are things that our healthcare systems need to actively address. Uh, And so uh, when when we allow uh, this kind of fear to persist, what it does is it increases risk for all of us if if some of our communities are left vulnerable. Is there some impact from uh, basically the reticence of some people to even get tested? I mean, I think we know from the HIV epidemic that there are a lot of people who said, I don't even want to know. I won't get tested because what can I do about it? Is that playing into it as well? That that they may, possibly may be the case. Uh, certainly, no, we know that in the early days of the HIV epidemic, because it was often a death sentence, uh, uh, that certainly people felt a loss of control, even if they knew uh, their status. But nonetheless, it's important, of course, uh, to know one's status, whether we're talking about uh, COVID-19 uh, or HIV. The other challenge, of course, though, um, with uh, the issue of stigma and testing uh, is that some populations who may be at heightened risk um, may not even be offered testing. So the issue of bias and stigma goes both ways. Uh, on the one hand, there may be uh, stigmatized populations may fear uh, getting tested, uh, but on the other hand, um, those health professionals who are charged with determining where uh, these tests are being applied, because remember, uh, there aren't enough tests at, at present 
uh, to address the needs of, of the population or, or at least those who might be symptomatic, uh, they are making decisions about who gets testing. Uh, and again, we know from a large body of, of research that unfortunately patients of color are less likely to get evidence-based or recommended interventions, uh, possibly including testing uh, based on their identity status uh, and uh, uh, stereotypes and biases, even unconscious biases that health professionals may hold. Some of the messages that are being spread in minority communities and, and elsewhere, I mean, it's creeping into the, the media for certain, include that the coronavirus was created in a lab in the United States and it was sent to China, that this was all a plot. There is also a president and others who are hyping untested medications. What's the psychological impact of hearing this kind of information and how can people sort out the scientific facts from misapprehensions or even in some cases outright falsehoods? Right. Yeah, you're touching on an issue that's critically important in the pandemic response. It's vitally important that everyone have accurate scientific information about what they can do to uh, reduce their risk what they should do if they're symptomatic, uh, and what they should do to help their families and their communities. Uh, and so certainly we know uh, that, um, that, that misinformation um, is more likely to spread uh, when people are fearful, when people are anxious, and when people are uncertain. And that is certainly the psychological state of much of the population uh, during this pandemic. So that's why it's so vitally important that our elected officials and our public health leaders communicate clearly and in culturally excellent ways to reach all of our populations, providing the best scientific information so that people can trust what they're hearing, they can take action to reduce their risks. But when we have the opposite, when we have clear uh, instances of misinformation, uh, when people are not getting in, uh, uh, the facts, uh, it only contributes more to the fear and anxiety. Uh, and the uh, those kinds of psychological states um, can make it harder to help reduce uh, risk for many of our populations and ultimately flatten the curve. So clearly, uh, the, the psychological dimensions of the pandemic are absolutely vital to address, uh, just as we do things like physical distancing. What are some of the possible solutions to these health inequities? What is APA and psychology asking our governments and, and the public to do? Absolutely. There are a number of steps that have to be taken. We know that it's essential that public health agencies conduct surveillance, uh, collecting data to understand which populations are at risk. Where is the virus going? Where do we need to focus resources to help communities to manage their risk? So we've called on much more robust, standardized data collection. Uh, the federal government has a significant role to play uh, in terms of providing resources and technical assistance to state and local health agencies who are often on the front lines of testing. But then ultimately, we need to coordinate all of the state and local uh, and federal uh, data collection into one comprehensive database. Uh, we only know that African Americans are higher at risk, uh, at higher risk because of the data collection and surveillance work that some states and localities are, are engaged in. Uh, we need all states and localities to have the resources, uh, capacity, uh, and, and a technical know-how to be able to do this. Unfortunately, over the past uh, several decades, the public health infrastructure 
uh, has been decimated by funding cuts at all levels, federal, state, and local, leaving us poorly prepared to deal with a pandemic such as that uh, that which we're dealing with now. So what we need is a much more robust effort uh, led by federal uh, support and resources uh, to help collect data. Uh, so data collection is a first step. Uh, a second thing that we have to do is to ensure that people have access to the services they need. Health care, obviously, is a critically important service, uh, but mental and behavioral health care are critically important as well, particularly for vulnerable populations uh, that may be at higher risk and face a host uh, of other sources of uh, stress and other kinds of uh, psychosocial stressors. Um, so uh, addressing the, the health and mental health needs of, of communities uh, is critically important as well. And we can do that by uh, doing things like expanding uh, health and safety net programs. States that have expanded Medicaid, for example, are much better prepared uh, and equipped uh, to handle the crush of coronavirus cases that, that they're experiencing. But beyond that, we have to ultimately address the upstream factors, the root causes of health inequities that we see across racial and ethnic groups, across groups with different levels of income and education, uh, across uh, groups uh, who, who are, are here arriving here from uh, different locations from around the globe. Addressing those inequities requires understanding the social, economic, and environmental determinants of health. I mentioned earlier that there are some neighborhoods uh, that are uh, that are experiencing higher uh, uh, rates of air pollution, uh, and that there may be there's there's some indication uh, that those communities may experience a higher incidence of of, uh, of infection with coronavirus. Well, those all also happen to be neighborhoods uh, that are disproportionately people of color, disproportionately low income. Uh, so addressing ultimately the factors that expose some neighborhoods to greater risk. Things like neighborhood poverty concentration, uh, addressing uh, sources of, uh, of environmental degradation, uh, improving sources of, of nutrition for these neighborhoods. Many of them are so-called food deserts, uh, lacking access to healthy food retail, which could help uh, to build um, uh, the, the necessary uh, 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 physical capacity to fight off infection uh, and addressing uh, other neighborhood amenities like parks and recreational facilities. Uh, it's interesting to see the disparity in terms of who is able to get out and exercise during this period of, of physical distancing and staying at home. Some neighborhoods enjoy access uh, to parks, recreational facilities, uh, other kinds of amenities that allow them to stay physically active while many neighborhoods, particularly those uh, that are characterized by high levels of, of poverty uh, and disinvestment, uh, may lack access to those kinds of resources, which again, help build community capacity uh, to, uh, to avoid uh, uh, risk for infection. A lot of these situations that you've just described are, are very entrenched in our society. They have existed for decades, and people have been complaining about food deserts and disparate pollution levels and so forth. What's different now? I mean, do we really have the willpower to change it? Are you feeling more hopeful that somehow out of this pandemic will, will come the change that we need? I think uh, pandemics and epidemics definitely expose inequities that we all need to be concerned about. 
pandemics ultimately uh, know no boundaries, right? They are, uh, we are all at risk, whether you, no matter what your race or ethnicity, your income, your education level. Uh, and so clearly, if some communities face higher risk, uh, then we're going to be much more challenged to be able to contain the pandemic and, and, and flatten the curve. So I think people are starting to see that persistent social and economic inequality, persistent discrimination, persistent racism, uh, and other kinds of destructive social hierarchies ultimately impede our ability uh, to manage epidemics and pandemics uh, and to promote good public health and, and mental health. So sadly, uh, as, as tragic as this pandemic has been, uh, part of what it is signaling to the country uh, is that our fates are deeply intertwined uh, and we ignore the needs of our most vulnerable communities at our own peril. How much has xenophobia uh, played a role in what's happening in some of these minority communities? And what are you doing to counteract that? Sure. Uh, unfortunately, again, because of fear, because of uncertainty, uh, because people don't have facts, um, it, it tends to uh, engender uh, stereotypes. It tends to create space for xenophobic attitudes and racist attitudes to creep into the public consciousness. And it's particularly troubling uh, when leaders and elected officials use irresponsible language uh, that, have to, that, that foments uh, xenophobic feelings. Uh, the APA has called for our leaders to use responsible language to call the virus what it is, COVID-19. There's no need to link it to a specific region of the country because all that does is it increases risks for people of Asian descent uh, to be attacked, to be bullied uh, with racist and xenophobic uh, attacks, both in public spaces and in virtual spaces. The problem with that, again, is that it divides our communities. Uh, it, it, it makes it easier uh, to blame an innocent victim uh, than, rather than blaming uh, the real culprit here, which is the virus itself. So uh, what we know from psychological research is that communities that have come together that have found ways to solve their challenges, communities that have high levels of what we call collective efficacy are those, are, are those communities that are gonna rebound the quickest from the pandemic. It strongly suggests that even though we're physically distancing, it's social cohesion, social coming together that's gonna help us solve this problem. I happen to know that the APA recently sent a letter to the White House asking the federal government to take the lead on requiring states and localities to report race, ethnicity, and other demographic characteristics of the people who are infected with the coronavirus, as well as those who die from it. Uh, what's been the response? We've been very pleased with the response. Um, people understand at all levels, federal, state, and local, uh, that under collecting this data is essential to understanding who's been affected and where the virus is going. So we're, we're very pleased. Uh, the White House Domestic Policy Council is seeking a meeting. Um, we have elected officials on both sides of the aisle who are looking for solutions. Uh, and so certainly when it comes to things like data collection, we need to be very concerned about personal privacy and our federal laws protecting 
uh, the privacy, the private health records of individuals. But in this instance, when we're facing a pandemic, we need coordinated federal, state, and local action to understand who's being tested, who's being hospitalized, what kinds of treatments are they getting. Uh, again, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we have research showing uh, that on average, patients of color are less likely to get the kinds of medical interventions and services that are that are the gold standard for medicine. Uh, so in, unless we're collecting this data, um, we are not likely to see where there might be disparities that might be dangerous for all of us. So the APA is calling for a much better coordinated federal response. Uh, we're looking to see if, if the private sector can get engaged, uh, helping to apply tools like artificial intelligence, again, to model and understand where this virus is, is going uh, and spreading going forward. So um, we're, we're certain that there's a, a short-term response that's necessary uh, in terms of getting this data collected quickly and disseminated, and a longer-term response in terms of understanding how we coordinate the vast array of federal data sources that can give us a more complete picture on how to stop the virus. Well, Dr. Smedley, thank you so much for joining Speaking of Psychology today. Uh, I think this has been very uh, an interesting conversation. I appreciate the, the work that you're doing to try to flatten the curve and end this pandemic. Thank you so much, Kim. And for our listeners, if you have any comments or ideas that you want to share about our podcast, you can send an email to speakingofpsychology at apa.org. That's speakingofpsychology, all one word, at apa.org. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website and download all the episodes at www.speakingofpsychology.org. Thanks for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills.